You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Jeannie. Hey, church family, it is a gift to be with you. As Jeannie said, uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. If you have a Bible, so you can turn there, Acts chapter 11. Um, and it's, it is a gift to be here, and we're closing out our series that we've been calling Onward. And this series, we've just been looking at this pertinent and crucial question in our day of what does it look like to be tethered to the local church? And then nuance it a little bit, like not just what does it look like to be tethered and prioritize the local church, but what does it look like to prioritize this church? What does it look like at Northway? And today we're, we're jumping into the idea of the fact that we are a church that sends, that we are a sending church. Acts chapter 11, um, as you're getting there, I'm going to read it. And, and if you're new to church or the Bible, um, and you could, you could Google that chapter, there's a bunch of Bible apps, feel free to throw that up there, but I'd love you to get there with me if you're able. Acts chapter 11, and we're in verse 19 through 30, and then the first three verses of chapter 13, I'm just going to read it for us. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And then 13, one through three. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Let me just pray for us. Father, as always, we we confess that your holy word under the power of your Holy Spirit really is enough for your people. So pray you'd speak to us tonight. I pray that you'd put some shoe leather on this text in such a way that it would Um, make its way into our homes and around our dining room tables and in our workplaces and neighborhoods. And you just would would work this text out in a way where we would see what it looks like to be ascending people here at Northway Church and thus ascending people in all of our lives. God, we want to be a people on mission uh, because because we've seen you and it's forever changed us. Would you help? And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I grew up in the Marietta, Georgia area, went to a college there called Kennesaw State University. 
the mighty fighting owls. So beware, field mice. You know, we were, we were it was a really intimidating mascot. Um, we didn't have a football team when I went there. Um, we do now, but anyway, you don't care too much about that. But the, the, the fighting owls, uh, my fifth year, my senior year there, took me five. I was an RA at, at the dorms, and we had the distinct privilege of welcoming uh, 40 Chinese government officials and delegates to our campus. So as an RA, I got to be one of the ones that got to just hang out with them and learn from them and, and just kind of rub shoulders together for a little bit. And we, we just would do different things where we'd invite them into aspects of our culture and they do the same with them. And, and so uh, Thanksgiving came around. We wanted to have a, like a massive uh, Thanksgiving feast and there was a huge line. And there, there was one friend who I had met who his English name was Camel. He named himself that because he smoked a lot. And so Camel and I were hanging out at the back of this line. And I, I don't know why, but we were just singing and having some fun. And we happened to, don't judge me, we happened to be singing Can You For The Love Tonight together. And I'm not sure why, but it's my memory. And we're singing that and having a good time. And I just remember Camel being like, hey, we should do this again. And I'm thinking, yeah, like we should do this again. You know, like us hang out, eat food and, you know, whatever, we'll do this again. And so he, about a fast forward about two months, he invited me along with a host of other people from our campus to the Chinese New Year celebration in Georgia that they were doing connected to our university. And so president of my university is there. There's a bunch of teachers, there's faculty, um, and I, uh, I show up, and I'm showing up, you know, like a senior in college, to sit in the back row and to appreciate this and to honor my friends, but just to come as a spectator. And I show up, and I'm thinking really quick, I think I'm in the wrong story. Like, I think I'm in the wrong place. In fact, I'm, I'm double-checking things and like, okay, this is the place, this is the place. I see a couple people at the doors, and they're like in tuxes. Like, okay. And there's a couple of buffet tables lined up with a lot of delicious food. And then they swing open the doors. And it was a ballroom, probably about this and add a half to it, which just, I don't know, it felt like 200 tables or so, just lots of people ready to pack this place out. And then they, they hand me a program. And me, spectator on this event, grabs the program, starts to make my way to my seat. And I look, and my name's on the program. And my name's on the program to sing Can You Feel the Love Tonight at this New Year's. And so I'm thinking, no, like, no, 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 no. Like, there's false humility in Christian circles at times. We're like, hey, I'm not gifted at that. And, but if you know me, I am tone deaf. Like my mom from an early age said, you should never sing on stage. And she was wise. She was like the good mom that before I got an American Idol, you know, like, and it went bad. But she, it, it's true. I, it doesn't build the body up when I sing, but, but I, I'm freaking out. Uh, my friend, Camel, another friend named Aaron, like, it's going to be fine. You know, this is good. This is for the people's joy. You know, like, it's going to be for someone's joy. I don't know if it's for mine, but we, um, and it was an amazing event. I'm talking about instrumental, like, things with knives and dragons. It was done so well until I came out, you know, and I really did try my best, motions and all, and they were generous to me. They loved me and blessed me and were super humble to me. They clapped me off the stage before my routine was over, and um, I just, I did what I think you would do if you're in that scenario. I, I gave my best, but why in the world do I tell you that story tonight? Here's why, because I think at times the same thing can happen like in our church circles. If you'll just swing with me here, that's possible for us to think that we're just showing up in church. We're gonna sit on the back row. No offense, we're sitting on the back row. Like proverbially, we're gonna spectate on the mission of God. 
uh, throughout the week. And we're going we're gonna to watch and see like professionals and others who are like really experienced, uh, really holy people. They're going to do the mission and we're going to be a spectator. And then God in his mercy, God in his mercy, when we experience the living Christ, when we experience Jesus Christ, uh, fully man, fully God, crucified, dead, buried, risen again. When we see him in living color and he changes us, he invites us into his mission, not just as spectators, but as participants. And it's beautiful. It's been said that sending or mission is as normal to the Christian as breathing. It's just what we do. It's who we are. Some of what we said was service. It's our identity, not just a hat we put on and off. And, and there's a desperate need right now in our day and time for cultures of sending. One, I say that just because of the state of the world. I don't need to tell you, but I'm thinking of forest fires in California and hurricanes and floods in New Orleans and New Jersey. And I'm thinking of globally, I'm thinking of attacks and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and tragedies. I'm thinking of disease and pestilence all over the world. I'm thinking of division in the church and division outside of the church. There's this need in a lot of the state of the world. And you know, in Acts 1, the disciples come to Jesus, maybe seeing difficulties in their day, and they say, is this the time? Like, are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's, it's not for you to know the days or times, but here's what it is time for. It's time for mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. But I don't just think of the state of the world. I think of the state of our city and American cities and the state of the church has been said that it's an ever-increasing post-Christian society that we live in. In other words, people that um, don't follow and love Jesus are not as prone to just waltz into the church. Um, Gallup has been doing polls for at least 80 years, and this is the first time that church membership is under 50%. There was a, a study done um, a few years before COVID that, that saw that about 20% of churches are actually growing but of those 20%, a very small minority, one to 2% are actually growing by reaching people that don't know Jesus versus just swapping Christians with one another. And, but, but yet we know that like our mission, the church's mission is worship, like worship of the triune God, and then outwards mission towards neighbor and all nations. And, but it just feels like there's a, there's a disconnect. J.D. Greer, a pastor at the Summit Church, says it really well. He says, uh, some people see church as a cruise liner. And so with that view of church, it's like you, there's preferences that you have. You might be evaluating like, man, uh, the, the pastor here, like, do I like how they're opening the text? Are they funny enough? The, the kids ministry, the youth ministry, what do I think of that? What do I think of the music? Like, do I like that? And then we kind of pick and choose based, okay, I think I'll podcast this person while going to this student ministry, while kind of listening to these songs. And church is really, it can be a cruise liner. The J.D. Girl also says, not a little bit better than a cruise liner, but still not good. Some people see church as like a battleship. And so, so in this type of picture, uh, it, you're, you're winning like if your church is loud and, and really getting after it with the mission. But, but the whole point is like the battle is, of that analogy is the battle is happening here. Like in that model, people see their pastors and ministers and church leadership as the ones who are like really carrying out the mission. And when you ask them about what their church is doing, they'll say things like, well, here's what we're doing on Sunday and here's what we're doing on Wednesday night. But, but it seems absent, like what the people of God are actually doing in the midst of the very city of God that they're in. But there's a third analogy he gives, and I love this one. I think it's really helpful. He says, what if not a cruise liner? What if not a battleship? What if the church is more like an aircraft carrier? And an aircraft carrier, the, the whole point 
of that deck is so that the planes can be made ready, fueled up and equipped so that they can take the battle elsewhere. So they can be on mission elsewhere. The worst case scenario for an aircraft carrier would be for that battle to come to the carrier. No, equip the planes, just connecting with last week, to, to go and be sent to another area where then they can engage on mission there. And that's been so helpful for me. And so the reason we're in Acts 11 is we're asking, asking this question of like, what would it look like? What would it look like to be a church on mission? What would it look like to be a sent and sending church? And the, the church at Antioch is like the, the OG of sending churches. It is, it is arguably one of the greatest sending churches that Christianity has ever seen. And uh, I don't know if um, you ever had one of those moments where you hear someone kind of go over a text and you like can't get their outline out, out of your mind. So I just want to give credit. There's a pastor named Jay Thomas in, in Philly, uh, a friend of some of us at this church who we love. And, and he, he unpacked this two years ago, right before we got hit by a tornado for some of us. And I haven't been able to get his structure out of my mind. So I'm going to use his structure. I just want us to see what it, what it would look like to be ascending church? What would it look like to be ascending church at Antioch? And then hopefully catch that vision and just talk a little bit about what it would look like to be ascending church here at Northway. Here's the first thing. The first word is just the idea of ordinary. By ordinary, here's what I mean, that we would see everyday, ordinary, unnamed people doing the work of sending and being sent. We would see everyday, ordinary, unnamed people on mission. It's the first thing. Let me show it to you in the text. Look at verse 19. It says this, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So Antioch, we're gonna throw a little map up here in a second if you wanna nerd out with me on that. But Antioch essentially was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And so the, the church is scattered here. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. It was a very diverse. Um, scholars tell us that it was, it was a city that actually opened, uh, maybe not, <laughs> opened its borders to uh, other countries. And so it opened its borders and citizenship was, was easily accessed there in Antioch. And so uh, it was uh, commonplacely known that both Jew and Gentile were there, both barbarian and Scythian, both uh, Indian, Persian, Chinese. It was a cosmopolitan city. And it was a large city. It was the third largest city in its day and time in Rome. Right behind, um, right behind Rome and Alexandria during the days of the Roman emperor, Empire. And it also was a strategic city. Like it sat right between the Mediterranean sea coast and the desert and just ha had this place where people wanted to come and mix. And with those stats in mind, it was just a city where, where people worshiped a, a lot of things, but a lot of it wasn't Jesus. They just worshiped a lot of, a lot of things that, that wouldn't truly bring them joy or fulfillment. But what's amazing is this story is about to change at Antioch. And it's about to change through everyday, ordinary, unnamed Christians. It says they traveled as far as Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, listen to this, to no one except Jews. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the entire mission in Acts 1 through 9 has been Jewish people opening the Jewish scriptures and speaking to other Jewish people. And now it's about to turn. Look at this in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. It says in 21, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Did you catch that? Um, some of them, the text says, verse 19, 
those. So we, we could ask the question, who, who planted the church at Antioch? And here's what we have to say, we don't know. We don't know their names. Do you know what we know? We know who it wasn't that planted the church in Antioch. This is amazing, but in Acts 8, it says that Saul of Tarsus approved of the execution execution of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout regions of Judea and Samaria, all scattered except the apostles. So here's what we know didn't plant the church. Anyone whose name that you, you might know, it wasn't Matthew, it wasn't Barnabas, it wasn't Saul, it wasn't Luke, it wasn't John. It was unnamed, everyday, ordinary believers that planted arguably the greatest sending church in the history of Christianity, which I think is just so phenomenal and encouraging. Here's what Stephen Neal says in his book, The History of Christian Missions. He says this, he says, nothing is more notable than the anonymity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of those pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by apostles. Peter and Paul may have organized the church in Rome, but they certainly did not found it. Everyday, ordinary, unnamed Christians extending the work of God here in the city of Antioch. I think that the, um, maybe the conflict that we have with this in our day and time is just the idea of professionalism. Like at times the uh, pastoral and ministry itself is professionalized where we have a divide. I can remember years ago, people talking about a sacred and secular divide. And unfortunately it's still there. You know, where some people are like the professional Christians and they do the work of ministry and others are amateurs. And some people are doing sacred work over here and others are doing secular work in the workplace. And this is in no way to diminish the, the role of the pastor, and it's an important role. But, but we know that because of the good news of the gospel, now there's this priesthood of believers where God has filled every one of his people with his spirit and equipped them to do amazing works, maybe even in an unnamed, not super glorified and ordinary way, but in a way that others in history might read and be impacted eternally for the glory of Jesus Christ. I, one of my favorite things to do at Northway is weddings. I, uh, I haven't done like a ton, but I, I just, I love doing them. And it's a great opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus, love getting to know the people walking with. And um, here's one thing, and this is super awkward. Here's one thing that's never happened in a wedding for me. I, I've never been standing there in front of the groom and bride. I've never had the best man like knock the groom out of the way and be like, hey, I'm gonna do the vows. You know, <laughs> like that would just be strange. Hope that never happens to me. I've never had the best man kind of nudge the groom out of the way and try to lean in for that first kiss, you know, before I pronounce them husband and wife. Why? D D Dr. Maurice Watson says this. Here's why. Because every good best man knows that's not my bride and this is not my wedding. This is what John the Baptist alludes to right before he says those famous words in John 3 that says, Jesus Christ, he must increase, but I must decrease. And, and if we're honest, when there's like a gospel sanity to us, isn't this what we want? Like, is, isn't what we want just to faithfully proclaim Jesus Christ wherever he has us, live a life that demonstrates his love, proclaim his love, whatever amount of years he'd give us here, go be with him and be forgotten. If it was to the glory of his name, that would all be good. That's what, like, when we're saying we long for that. But then there's other times we're trying to like grab for more than that. Not just, um, not just ordinary. Second word is just community. 
community. And specifically when I say that, I'm just talking about that we need a humility that produces a community that's really reflected in, a, in both a, a unity and diversity on mission. So community is reflected by unity and diversity on mission. Look with me at the text to see it here. In verse 22, it says that the report came back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And first time the sent word is used here, they send Barnabas to Antioch. And so the headquarters, the church in Jerusalem has heard about the amazing works of God through these ordinary believers in Antioch. And so they're catching up with what God's doing. And as wise leaders, they send Barnabas to go encourage and help with the work there and see what God's doing. And look what happens. Uh, He came, verse 23, and what does he see? He sees the grace of God. That's great. How how do you see the grace of God? Just been thinking about that this week. Like, how do you see the grace of God? I think one thing that he saw is he saw legitimate salvation. He saw people that were transferred from darkness to light. He saw people coming to faith in Jesus. He saw a vertical reconciliation between humanity and God in that town in massive ways that showed the grace of God. But I think also what he saw was he saw a horizontal reconciliation. He saw what they had not yet seen to this point in the book of Acts. He saw what the church in Jerusalem had not yet seen. He saw maybe Indians and Persians and Chinese, for sure, Jews and Gentiles together worshiping Jesus Christ. And he says, he saw, the text says, he saw the grace of God. I love that. He was glad and he began to exhort them like to stand strong, to to be faithful with steadfast purpose in the Lord Jesus. He was a good man, full of the spirit, the text says. And look what he does next. When there's a massive outpouring of God at work, what does he do? Here's what Barnabas does. He takes the microphone and he hands it to someone else. I had a good buddy in college who, um, he was just different, but you know, a lot of people say front seat, like front seat, no challenge. He'd always be like back seat, no challenge. You know, just like always trying to slip in the back seat. This is what Barnabas does. He sees a great work of God. He hands the microphone off. He slips into the back seat of gospel ministry and he calls Saul of Tarsus. Maybe he had heard about the phenomenal um, just transformation in Saul's life, for sure he had. And maybe he'd heard about his gifted teaching and Paul's ability to lead the people of God. And so he calls Saul and he asks for help. I can't do this alone. Leans into community and he calls Saul. And it says, for a whole year, they meet with the church and they teach a great many of people. And in Antioch, this is amazing. Verse 26, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So hear this, in Antioch, not the disciples call themselves Christians. Someone else calls them Christians. It's amazing. It's disciples, disciples and followers of Jesus who are actually called Christians. It's not people naming themselves Christians who are not following him in the way of Jesus as disciples. And again, why was that the case? Well, it just seems like people looked at Jewish people who are professing faith in Jesus and Gentile people professing faith in Jesus. And we don't know what to call them besides, here's the commonality. They're professing faith in one Lord Jesus Christ, one savior. We're gonna call them little Christ. We're gonna call them Christians. And then if you'll drop down with me at, at 13.1, there's just another sneak peek into this idea of community, unity, and diversity. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of Herod, the Tetrarch's court, and Saul. Never forget the first time I had someone unpack these names for me. I was just jaw-dropped, like jaw-dropped at the beauty of the community here in Antioch. Barnabas is most likely a bicultural Jew, he was a Jew from Cyrene. Simeon was a black African. Lucius was from North Africa. 
Cyrene would have been Menaean, grew up in the palace. He grew up in the upper, upper ranks of society. Saul was a Jew and a Roman citizen with a, with a very colorful past. And so all of a sudden you've got this group of people, some that had been following the Lord for a while, some for a little bit, some that had a great past of brokenness behind them, some not as much, some with great socioeconomic standing, others with not, some with this ethnicity and others with this one and some with this geography background and others with this. And they're all together professing one Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of, the, one of the things that pushes on us at becoming these type of communities that would send out missionaries in communities like this and send out church painters in communities like this and be sent out ourselves in our gospel communities and communities like this. And we've talked about this a lot with GCs, how at times you get in there and you start to realize, man, I'm with people that apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be here with. Like there's different genders and different ages and different backgrounds and different personalities. And but the Lord is kind to bring us all together in one. But I think one of the things that pushes against this is just our current day, like individualism of like, I'm all set, I'm okay. Like I'll take care of me. And it breaks the aspect of community or even tribalism of like my, my way and my background, like this is the way it's gonna be done. But the gospel can undercut those and bring a humility that forms true uh, community. Uh, Shay and I have jumped into something in DFW where there's a church planning network that's starting to form, just hoping to plant um, diverse, different background churches in the city of Dallas. And the, the oldest men and women that are a part of it have told us that they've never seen something like this in the city of Dallas. And they've said the reason they haven't is because Dallas is too territorial. That like we we're too much like no I'm gonna do we're gonna do our training thing over here and then we'll do our thing over here and like like we're, we're we don't have enough give to actually unify and do things together and then they said that uh, before Shay and I got there that Tim Keller a pastor in New York City came and spoke to Dallas and his word was Dallas is not desperate enough which is just too convicting you know he's like you're not desperate enough. Here's the reason you've never had one of these like New York does or Boston. You're not desperate. You're not, you're not willing to lean in and work together for the sake of a greater good because you haven't arrived at that point of desperation. But not just ordinary, not just community, but look at 27 through 30. We just see radical, radical generosity. Here's what I mean. Though the church was planted amidst great difficulty and it's a young church, they're still marked by a costly generosity. It says this in the days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit there'd be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, the, the emperor at this point in Rome. So the disciples, did you hear that? It wasn't, uh, wasn't top down, it, it was the disciples, the disciples that every day ordinary believers determined everyone according to his ability to send relief, to send possessions and probably money, maybe some food, um, to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so this is a church that is just so generous with their very possessions. This, this is amazing. Up to this point in the book of Acts, Acts 2 and Acts 4, there's been incredible generosity. They're giving everything they have. They're sharing their possessions. But, and this is amazing. It must start here within the four walls. But the generosity up to this point is all within the church of Jerusalem. It's all within the, the confines of the church. But now, for the first time in Acts, they see a need outside of the church, 300 miles away, their mother church, and they begin to collect the disciples send it by the way of some of their leaders and bless this church in such a way to preserve the witness of God and the very people made in the image of God in the midst of this famine, which I think is I think it's really beautiful. But if you look 
kind of rotate back to chapter 13, they don't just part with their possessions. They're willing to part with their very, their very people. It says this, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have, have have them. So they part with their very things and with their very people, this generous, super generous church. If you've been around circles like this for any time, you know sometimes we talk about generosity and the motivation is guilt. And it goes something like this, like, okay, like how many lattes are you drinking a week? Like imagine, like take all those lattes, like how could that be? There's people that don't have any latte, like they have massive needs and you need to do something about that. And there's like some good at that, like we should be stewards, but if guilt is the motivation, we'll stop drinking lattes for maybe a week or two, maybe like a month if really good at that game. And then you just go back to the old patterns. And then some motivate not by guilt, but by greed. They say things like this, I mean, if you just give, if you'll just be generous, it'll be poured back to you like 10, you know, it's gonna come back to you. You give to me and then God's gonna give back to you. And, and there, there's a greediness of motivating it. It's jaded and hurt a lot of people. We know that the best motivation is not guilt nor greed, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, the, the Corinthian church, would be one of the churches that Paul would be a part of writing to, encouraging, and planning from the missionary journeys that he sent from Antioch. And they sound a lot like Antioch, not, not surprising that the gospel culture overflowed. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8.2. It says this, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, man, I wanna be like that, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That word affliction, same word used at the beginning here of Acts 11 about the Antioch church going through great trouble and persecution. And then later Paul shows, how did this happen? Like, how do you become a people like this? How do you have a culture like this? Well, it's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's Jesus Christ giving everything. Jesus Christ giving all of him in such a way that when we see that in living color, the only logical response is to lean back in and say, God, all of me, then for all of you. Like I want to live the same life. I think on a practical note, one thing that's been helpful for me, I'm not here, but John Wesley apparently would, would try to answer this question, have his, have his people answer the question of like, what is enough? Like, what is enough to live on? Like, what can I, like, what, what's actually enough? Because it never feels like enough, you know? It always feels like, well, this would be nice and this would be nice, but what is enough? And if I can answer that question before the Lord, then I, I can be compelled to be a person that's just full of gospel generosity that overflows on top of the things I'm giving to the Lord already. When I was in um, graduate school, we had a professor named Howard Hendricks who just was a man full of life and joy and loved Jesus and, he had, this was about nine years ago, so he had a DVD set that he loved, that um, he had let, lent out to a student. It was expensive. It never came back. And he mentioned it in passing, maybe for like three seconds in one of our classes. Well, one of my good friends named YK heard that and just went on a mission to find it, searching up and low and high and everywhere, found it, um, collected all of the money he could kind of scrounge up on a graduate school budget and purchased it and then put it on Prof. Hendricks' desk a couple weeks later. And I'll never forget when Hendricks saw it, he just simply went to one straight line and just said, surely this man has been marked by the grace of God. Because when you see 
generosity out here that lasts, that's real, that's costly, not just something to look good on social media, not just something to, to like check a box in our culture, but I'm talking about true, costly, radical generosity. The root is always someone that's been touched by the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and what about us? I mean, I feel like we're a church that's been touched by the, by the grace of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've been here for a while or you just started coming, but I see that in the way our church responds to needs. I just love it. I've seen it in Last week, us announcing a need to mentor international students and 40 of our people showing up on the deck to lean in of how, we, how can we be strategic to preach Jesus. Saw it last Thursday where we put a need out to you know, uh, do welcome teams for Afghan refugees and 85 people as we linked up with Eastside Community Church, one of our former church plants and us together, 85 people in here just eager. Like how can we demonstrate Jesus to people and declare him to people? I love that. It, our church... Um, before we partnered with the village, we had the privilege of planning Prestonwood Church, another church in Plano, and, and then three years ago, Eastside Community Church, Mosaic. Six years ago, Seven Mile Road, excuse me, Waltham, and man, we have been a generous church. Like, it's almost one of those things where sometimes when you see Paul's exhortations in the New Testament, he'll say things like this, like, I see your love, I just want you to love all the more. That, that's how I feel about this. Like, man, I see your generosity, it's amazing. I want more of it. Like, let's, let's, let's keep going along these lines. May God make us a generous people. And then just the last thing, not just ordinary, not just community that's marked by unity and diversity, not just generosity, but we see a dependency in this church. We see a church that just seems like they are desperate and dependent on God to do what they cannot do in and of themselves. You see it in the last few verses we haven't gotten to here in, in 13 where they are fasting and worshiping the Lord. They're praying and they're hearing from the Spirit of God in the midst of that. They are dependent on the Spirit of God. In fact, this isn't our text, but verse four even says that they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. I love that. This is not to knock good strategies, but I love it. It's the Holy Spirit that is the engine of sending for this church. Let's be honest. Um, when you read this account of the church of Antioch, if you think about the context, this is only a work that could be attributed to by the hand of God. It says that in the text, but um, David Platt, uh, preacher, he heard him say this, but essentially, if you were the enemy and you wanted to like snuff out the mission of God, maybe in Acts 7, maybe this is your plan is you're gonna kill one of the main leaders of this church. He's martyred, Stephen is martyred, but right beside him, is Saul of Tarsus, holding his cloaks, witnessing the persecution, then goes on to persecute the church even more, to such an extent that from Saul's persecution and others, the church in Antioch actually gets planted. And you think about it, you fast forward a little bit of time, and when they go to call a pastor, who does Barnabas go look for? He goes and he looks for Saul of Tarsus. And then looks like, based on this text, a year later or so, when they go to send out missionaries, who do they look for besides Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and Saul of Tarsus? Who else, who else can write a story like that? I've just been so encouraged by that this week, that the very person that persecuted the church to plant the church helps pastor the church and that gets sent by the church. This is a church that is only possible by the hand of God and the hand of God alone. And so, man, I've just been so compelled by the culture of sending that's at Antioch. And my hope and prayer was that that would be true of us too, just be compelling to us. 
And then just briefly, I want that to switch into what would it look like for us to get caught up, not just in the compelling culture there, but what would it look like for that culture to, to happen here? And it's been said that when it comes to mission, you either um, go uh, yourself, you're sent yourself, you send others, or you disobey. So we won't go with the disobey one. We'll say that's not an option. We'll just go with the first two, just really briefly here tonight. First, just go. A, a great sending church needs people that are willing to go. Just like at Antioch, Jerusalem church sends Barnabas there and then Antioch sends Barnabas and Saul out from there on these journeys over and over again. And so when it comes to going, a couple things come to my mind. Um, one is we have a short-term mission trips at our church. The last two years, they've all gotten canceled um, through things like tornadoes and covid and uh, stuff like that. That sounded kind of dramatic, didn't it? It's true. Um, and so those got canceled there. But for the first time, by the grace of God, they're all up on our website right now. And so the month, the actual trip, where we're going. And so you can go to Northway Church's new website. It looks amazing. Thanks to Ryan Crisman. Click on Missions and Mobilization. Go to Go Trips and man, just check those out. If you have any interest in just growing in awareness of what God's doing globally, wanting to go care for some of our planters and missionaries on the ground and extend the work of God, go check that out. There's an interest form you can fill out. One is just to jump on a Go Trip. Like let God change you for the rest of your life. It's what happened for many of us when you begin to see the needs globally and what God's doing, how he's at work. Secondly, some of you, God might be stirring to go in a long-term capacity. There might be a stirring on you to be a church planner here in DFW or, or um, around our nation or globally to be sent as a missionary. And if that's you, would you please come talk to us? We'd love to talk about that stirring and what like the next step of faithfulness would be. And you could email our mobilization department at mobilization at northwaychurch.com and we'll walk with the next step. And I just want to remind us at the same time, though God does set apart unique people to cross culturally as like a missionary, um, at the same time, all of us, again, are called on mission. We talked about this two weeks ago as service, but that's all of us. That's the call on all of our lives. It's the identity we wear as sons and daughters of the King. It's as common to us as breathing. We are those that are sent into our workplaces and neighborhoods on mission. But if it's not going, like ascending church doesn't just need people to go. And this might be the more unnamed and unrecognized one. Ascending church needs people to stay and care and help. I think about names like this in Acts 13. I think about Menaean, I think of Simeon, and I think of Lucius. Maybe you had never heard those names in church before, before tonight. They're unnamed. There's not a big, it's not big spotlights behind them, but they faithfully stayed in Antioch and helped pray and give and care in such a way that the missionary journeys and extension of the gospel to the ends of the earth and eventually to us was possible. And when it comes to those things, I just wanna mention one, caring. We have some uh, cards for the 10 missionaries that we have, like the long-term vocational missionaries that we have on the field in the back of this auditorium. You can grab one on your way out, but, but they, they, they would be huge, have a huge benefit just from your prayers and your love towards them. We've got, just to give you a little bit of a, a picture of who we've got. We've got Josh and Melissa, Justin and Melanie, Aaron and Courtney, Andrew in London, Zach and Kathleen. We've got Ruth and Caleb, Jennifer, Ben and Rose, Daniel and Rachel, and Joel and Nicole. 80% of them are in uh, the 1040 window where there's some of the least reached places, excuse me, around the world. Uh, they're in regions like East Asia, Middle East, East Africa, and Europe. Three of them are currently stateside and seven are on the field, but they would, um, man, just benefit so much if the Spirit of God is just moving in you to pray and give and support 
that would be awesome. And then we've got, I mentioned this, Clint and Andy Patronella in Boston. The work in Boston is a little different than what we saw at like Eastside and Richardson were those works. We sent lots of people, like I think like seven to 800 people with them. Not doesn't sound like a church plant, but in Boston, it's a slower work. The soil is harder and um, there's still much need for them to be encouraged. And I, I just say last, um, some of you, God might be stirring in such a way like an Eric and Lindsay Walters. And this is kind of a care aspect, but it actually kind of goes undergoing where they just said, hey, God has gifted us. Like Eric Walters, I, I work in the airline industry. Lindsay Walters, I'm a physical therapist. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted to take their unique gifts that were God-given and do them somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And so Boston would be an awesome place for that. Maybe we could send some of you to go help the Patronelles and just do what God has gifted you with to do it strategically in Boston or send you overseas to be a part of some of the, the places that we have people on the ground to do what God has called you to do. What I've been thinking about this week is just, just to imagine like what would have happened, like what would have been the case if the church at Antioch didn't send. If, if you love the book of Romans, we're jumping into that series again next week. Excited about that. If you love the book of Romans, all right, got some fist pumps. If you love the book of Romans, you can, you can thank the sending culture, the church of Antioch. If you, if you love the joy and unity and encouragement from Philippians, you can thank the sending church at Antioch. If you love um, Ephesians and the beautiful doctrine about the gospel at the beginning and then the, the practical application at the end towards our workplaces and homes, um, you can thank the church at Antioch. And if, and if we're here tonight and you, you happen to be ethnic, ethnically non-Jewish, you can thank the church of Antioch because they were the ones who began to push out to the ends of the world and fulfilling Jesus' commission that it might, might come here. And I've been thinking, well, imagine for Northway, like, like what if? Like what, what if we were a church that continued to mobilize ordinary, everyday, unnamed people for the work of ministry? What would the workforce look like here in Dallas, Texas, if every believer saw themselves on mission tomorrow? It doesn't mean like, like you come back, you're like, my boss came to know Jesus. You know, like it might not be that quick, but what if it was just this intentional, like I'm, God's shifting something in me. Today was a reset and I have a new purpose. In the midst of a really discouraging COVID few years, God's fueling me with new power and new purpose. What if, what if it was ordinary here that college students tied the first couple of years after they graduated to go to the mission field? What if we had retirees, like one of our sister churches, the Summit Church that came to us and said, hey, um, we have some time and we've got some money and we just wanna like use some of our money to go care for missionaries. And we just wanna bless them, show us where to go. What if we were a church that, that humility moved in us in such a way that, that we sent teams of diverse people that were tethered to go do a work together in church planning or in missionary work? What if, what if we were so generous that, that when we left that like the mayor and the city of Dallas, I said when we left, shouldn't have said that if we left, if Northway left, that wasn't a prophecy. Um, if Northway left, they would be a loss because we weren't here. Because they'd be saying, man, every need in this city, when I think of things, the big needs of the city, if the mayor was to say, it's things like homelessness and refugees and the unborn and the poor and the racial minority. But everywhere I look, I see Northway people. Like what, what if that was the case? And then just what, what if we got to be a part of a work as a church that just like the church in Enoch, it was said, unless the hand of God was on that, it, it, it wouldn't be possible. In, in John 21, Jesus Christ shows up to a group of huddled disciples after his death. He's resurrected from the dead. They are huddled, spectating on the mission, scared, hiding in a locked room. And he shows up with nail scars in his hands and his side and his feet. 
And like only Jesus could, his first word to them is just don't be afraid. He imparts the Holy Spirit of God, breathes on them, they receive the Spirit. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And that, that's why we've been doing this series, um, this series onward, so that me, we might be a people that just jump in as not just spectators, but participants in the worship of the triune God and belonging, tethered to a body, pushing for the mission of God. It was Eugene Peterson that famously said, everyone, everyone has problems with the church because there's sinners in the church, but there's no other place from which you can be a Christian. And so may that be true of us. I'm gonna pray for us. And then uh, Burton French, one of our elders, is gonna lead us at the Lord's table in communion tonight. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We just thank you um, for the just the beautiful picture of the church at Antioch. Thank you for the reminder that the story that we're caught up in is thousands of years old. Thank you for the reminder of faithful brothers and sisters who lived ordinary lives, tethered to community, giving generously and doing, a, being a part of a work in such a way that only you could get the credit. And I just thank you for them. And I just pray you would take some of that Antioch culture and and just um, seep it more into Northway. And I just bless you for God, what you've been doing at our body. And we just ask for more. And Jesus, I pray that our motivation for that would, wouldn't be guilt, wouldn't be greed, would be solely the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. We pray this for his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.